Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. And welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. In this podcast, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Danny Bartlett. Danny is the lead pharmacist for Horsham Central Primary Care Network. He's a senior lecturer at the University of Brighton. He currently is on the Health Education England Interprofessional Leadership and Educational Fellowship. And Danny also sits on the Royal Pharmaceutical Society English Pharmacy Board. I love this conversation because there's so much career advice which will be applicable to so many people. And for those of you that are a pharmacist or a pharmacy tech or a clinical director or a GP or a PCN manager, in this podcast you will gain great insights into the role of a pharmacist. You'll also listen to Danny's views on the upcoming changes affecting pharmacists, which will mean by 2026 or newly qualified pharmacists will also be prescribing pharmacists. We talk about the need for stellar clinical supervision and Danny shares his top three pieces of advice for newly qualified pharmacists entering the world of general practice. Danny's so passionate about sharing best practice in the world of pharmacy and you will hear his passion and enthusiasm in this podcast. It's infectious. This is my first meeting of the day. And I'm now on a high, I feel inspired, I feel motivated, and I hope you guys do too. As always, all I ever ask is that you share the podcast if you like it, and I'll see you in the next one. Hey Danny, thank you so much for joining me on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? No problem. Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So I've done a little bit of research. Correct me if I've got anything wrong. You are the lead pharmacist at Horsham Central Primary Care Network. You are a senior lecturer at Brighton University. You are part of the Health Education England Interprofessional Fellowship Programme. What else do you do? (laughs) When I have time. Yeah, that was all right. The fellowship actually is ending this year, but I also um, sit on the Royal Pharmaceutical Society English Board. So that basically is our professional leadership body. So similar to the BMA for GPs and doctors. And yeah, just sit on that board and then help with giving my input on the profession, really, and the direction of travel. And you were speaking at best practice. You've got two speaking slots talking about pharmacist prescribers and then utilising the pharmacy team to support patient access. Yeah, so the first one's about my role as one of the senior lecturers at the University of Brighton and just the changes with the degree. All pharmacists are going to be qualifying as prescribers at the point of registration from 2026. 
which is slightly terrifying. So we need to make sure that their upskilled and degree is adapted to make sure they can flourish rather than panic and come out without any tools that they need. And then the second bit, yeah, it's all about the new DES contract, the new IAF focusing on access. And I think it's been quite tricky for the pharmacy teams to know really what their role in that is, because last year we had all of these really prescriptive targets in the IAF, whereas this year it's a lot vaguer. So I'm just talking about what we're doing in our team, how I'm interpreted in the contracts and what we're doing to show our pharmacy teams access and show that patients have access to our services as well as your regular routine GP practice one. You've mentioned you listen to the podcast. You know what to expect. With all that you do, what drives you? How have you managed to build this portfolio career? You must be incredibly busy. Like, why do you do it? I am really busy. For me, I, I'm really, really passionate about the profession. And I find that pharmacists aren't always the most outspoken in terms of what they do, in terms of what their worth is, and the impact they can make on patients and other professionals. So I'm really passionate about that. And I think that because I'm so passionate, it almost gives me the energy to have this portfolio career, as you mentioned. I started off just in community pharmacy and then went to primary care when the PCNs formed in 2019. And the roles just kind of evolved with me from 2019 onwards. And that's just been so great to see. And it's always changing. Every day is different. And I've just got a passion for it. Passion for the profession, passion for education, but also there's an overriding want to make us as safe as possible for professionals. So making sure that anyone that comes to primary care or qualifies as a pharmacist in general practices within their scope and within their bounds in a safe way. What made you come into primary care networks? So I managed pharmacies, they were fairly big pharmacies, so I've gradually got bigger and bigger and bigger to busier pharmacies. And then my last pharmacy I managed before making the move was actually within a GP practice. So I already had kind of an existing relationship with a GP. There was already a pharmacist in place there. And I really liked the amount of information you get and how you can affect prescribing changes. It seemed quite a lot more clinical back then. Obviously, community pharmacy is shifting much more clinical now with lots of new innovative services coming out over the next coming years. But I think back then, it looked very interesting to me to be able to then do a prescribing course, make sure that you're a bit more patient facing, kind of running your own blood pressure clinics and things like that. That was really interesting to me. So that's why I made the leap. And I think it was lucky for me because I already had that relationship with the GPs over there. It didn't feel like a new sector. It felt like I was already part of that team. And have you been with the same primary care network? No. So I moved last year. My first PCN was in coastal West Sussex. And then I made the move last April to this PCN in Horsham, which is where I live now. And Horsham Central PCN are very at the forefront of PCNs in terms of creating a leadership structure. And because they're a bit bigger than my previous PCN, they needed a lead pharmacist to kind of manage their pharmacy team. They had a few more pharmacists and pharmacy technicians. So that role really enticed me. And I really wanted to kind of have a bit more of that leadership in terms of the clinical leadership, but also the educational leadership. And that's what this PCN has been able to offer me. I think it's helpful for pharmacy techs and pharmacists to hear your leadership journey and the opportunities that you have created, because to a degree, the path isn't clear. I know, and I've been part of interview panels where people want to progress. You can kind of say, you can do this, you can do this, but it's not a laid out pathway. So you've been in a primary care network and then you're looking for more leadership opportunities. So for those people out there, there are lead pharmacy roles. You work in the university. How did you get that opportunity or did you just look on the website and apply? 
I compress my hours into four days a week. My clinical role as the lead here in Horsham. So I had one day a week to play around with, if you like. And in my previous role, I was already taking students as part of a new scheme. It was through Health Education England, and it was taking pharmacy students on clinical placement. And because I had the contacts of the university, they could let me know that the senior lecturer role was coming up and encouraged me to apply for it. So I did. So I started there last September, I think. And basically, they wanted someone that was also clinically practicing in a primary care sense. So they had lecturers that were full-time academics. They also had lecturers that work in secondary care, but they didn't really have lecturers or any lecturers that work in primary care as well. So they want someone that has a foot in both camps. So it encouraged me to apply because I felt like I could give some valuable resource towards that and also give a bit, a bit of an insight into this, like you said earlier, in terms of the PCM being relatively new. I wanted to give my insights of what that looks like for pharmacists. So the pharmacy students knew what to expect if they did want to make the journey into primary care once they qualify, because it's the old fashioned pharmacy sector was always either secondary care or community pharmacy. Primary care was a bit of a mysterious role. So I'm almost trying to debunk it a bit. What are the three things a newly qualified pharmacist can expect when coming into primary care? I think working with a multidisciplinary team, which you would get in a secondary care sense, but I think you'd feel maybe perhaps a bit more autonomous in primary care. You're practicing on your own a bit more, whereas in secondary care, everyone's at arm's length. The next thing is just the sheer amount of information and the potential to go in any direction. I use a phrase quite often with my team is living in the grey in general practice. So you might have guidelines that you're kind of working to and are aware of, but patients might sit within those guidelines. And living in the grey is very, very key to feel comfortable in that, but to also not feel pressured by that. And then the last thing is, I think, just having a lot more training opportunities available to you. So if you're interested in HRT and menopause, you can go and speak to maybe one of the GPs that has an interest in that. If you've got an interest in physiotherapy, you can work with one of the physios. It's different to working within the MDT in that you'd refer a patient to this particular professional. You can actually grab the ball by the horn, try and broaden your scope within that kind of interest area. So it's similar to the first one I said, but the third one is that you can really say, right, I'm interested in HRT. I'm interested in menopause. I want to learn a bit more about that. I'm going to go and sit in a clinic with a GP for half a session. I'm going to find out a bit more about this. And then when I next deal with a patient, I'm just going to be a bit more informed. And that's slightly different to just saying, oh, well, I know this physiotherapist in our PC and I'm just going to refer you on. I would challenge you slightly on the last one. Mm. There are training opportunities, but it sounds like you have come in your primary care networks. The culture has been amazing and that you can say, I'm interested in this. Can I come and sit in your clinic? Can I train and they provide those opportunities for you? Not mm. everybody has that. So it's more about I think my key message would be to anybody looking to work within a primary care network is in the interview process is you really want to try and find out the culture of that organisation or, you know, the culture of the network Mm. and are those opportunities, they're there. It's can you take them? Can you grab them? Because it's so, so busy. And I think people that can't always do that, it's not necessarily the culture is bad. It's just so busy that it's hard to free up time to support and train others. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you. But I think there's a couple of ways that I always encourage someone to look at it is firstly, know what your interests are going in. What are you interested in? How do you want to develop clinically? Because no one's going to tell you how to develop clinically. No one's going to tell you what interests. And actually, if you let that pass you by, you might end up 
being given a topic that you're not necessarily that engaged with. You might be given an IAS target or some sort of contract target and audit that you're not necessarily interested in. So know what your own interests and drives are. And then the second thing is, is there are lots of training opportunities. My PCN is incredibly supportive with that. But also, I always encourage all of my team to be a bit self-directed. So if you are interested in, let's say, menopause and HRT as an example, have a look at the resources available and look at the patient demographic that that can then affect. So in my PCM, we've been doing group consultations around menopause because we recognise that was a particular area where our patients would benefit from that. So it needs to be a benefit to the patients. You don't want to go on a course for no reason. You don't want to go on a course just selfishly to progress yourself. It needs to have an impact on the patient population that you work with in, right? So I think making sure that you've got that advocate (laughs) in the PCM, you've got that patient population, and that will really help you get that support for that training that you really want. everyone this podcast is brought to you in partnership with best practice where we will be interviewing some of the speakers and sponsors attending the event in birmingham on the 11th and 12th of october if you are already registered to attend do let us know as we would love to meet you and if you are still to register your place please click on the link in the show notes now let's jump back into this week's episode At the beginning of the interview, you mentioned that by 2026, all pharmacists will be prescribers. And you said that's really scary. Why is that scary? So I think scary, I think it was more of a, a clickbait response, really. But I think in terms, <laughs> in terms of why it's not necessarily scary, it's very exciting. I think it's definitely the direction of travel of what the profession is going towards. So as a bit of background, if you want to be a prescribing pharmacist at the moment, do your four-year degree, you do a year in your foundation year, and then you qualify as a pharmacist, register as a pharmacist. And then if you did want to be a prescriber, you would then have to do an additional postgraduate qualification for six months. What the new degree is, is that by 2026, at the point of registration after your foundation year, you will be a qualified prescriber meaning that you prescribe anything apart from a couple of items, but essentially anything. And it's basically left to you to decide what your scope of practice is. And I think the scary thing for me is I want to make sure every pharmacist is aware of what their scope of practice is. Every pharmacist knows if they did have a particular interest and they want to broaden the scope of practice, that they knew how to do that in a safe way. And also, I just want everyone to get quality supervision. And you kind of alluded to the fact that PCNs are firefighting all the time. It's really hard to get supervision all over the time. But I think empowering the existing pharmacists in the system, empowering the existing pharmacy technicians in the system to show them what good supervision is like is very, very key to these new qualifying prescribers to come out safely. So I think I want a few things in place before this happens in 2026. I think we're definitely in the direction that is very, very positive. But I think you alluded to the fact that there's so much to do in primary care. Everyone's so, so busy. I don't want this to get forgotten about. And I don't want people to come out qualifying as pharmacists and then not have that supervisional structure in place. So that's a bit of what I'm going to talk about, at least at the best practice shows. What does good supervision look like? How do I supervise my team? How do I supervise a pharmacist? How do I supervise a pharmacy technician? How do my pharmacists collaborate with each other to get those junior members of the team more clinically competent? And what does that look like in reality rather than just a theory? Could you share just a couple of points? Obviously not your whole presentation. What does good quality clinical supervision look like? Absolutely. So I think as a starting point, a few of the things that I'm just about to say is going to sound a bit like sucking eggs in terms of how simple it is. But actually, if you reflect on whether that happens across the country, it probably doesn't. The first thing is a learning needs assessment. So figure out exactly what the baseline for that particular learner is. 
So I've got a competency tracker that I developed and that's just getting a baseline over whatever that pharmacist or pharmacy technician in front of you or whatever that learner in front of you has done before. How much do you know about asthma? What do you know about asthma? Do you know how to do an asthma review? Do you know what types of inhalers there are? Do you know how to reauthorize medication? Do you know how to interpret blood tests? It could be absolutely anything and you can adapt it to the learner. But doing that initial learning needs assessment is so essential because if you leave that learner behind and you start teaching them things maybe a bit too advanced or you're teaching them things they already know, you're wasting their time. They might disengage with the learning in general. So it's really, really key. And then the second thing that I think is very, very important is make sure that you evaluate that cycle regularly. So make sure that you're having regular one-to-ones with your learners. I have a one-to-one with each of my team once a month and make sure how they're getting on with that particular training because people might learn in different ways and you might need to adapt your teaching style and what that supervision looks like. So some people really like shadowing, sitting behind you running a clinic and other people really like having a bit of a debrief after each of their consultations. So if you can figure out in those one-to-ones and those really key meetings of your learners what their learning style is and adapt the way that you're supervising them, that can be really effective. So they're my two initial top tips, but I go into a bit more detail at the show. And how big is your team? So I've got three clinical pharmacists and two pharmacy technicians and myself. And how is your week structured? You mentioned you work four days a week. How much, I say in quotes, like free time? (laughs) Is it all like non-clinical time do you have? So I was very keen when I took the role. I've been given amazing freedom, really. So my PCN, just as a bit of background, is four practices and we cover about 57,000 patients. So I always have all four of the surgery systems open at any one time, but all of my team don't have that. My team have a set clinic in each practice based on whatever day of the week they're in. And that's based on how big the practice is, is how big a share they get of each pharmacist or pharmacy technician throughout the week. But myself, I have all four systems open at any one time, and that allows me to move my resource wherever the work is. So there might be a pharmacist that perhaps is on holiday or off sick, then I'll jump in and do their clinic. There might be a particular surgery where the documents, discharges and letters are building up. So I'll move there. We've got some high cholesterol projects in one of the practices, which is building up at the moment, for example. So I'll put myself there today and we'll do like a full clinic on high cholesterol, making sure anyone that is at risk of cardiovascular events is starting lipid lowering therapies and things like that. So I move myself around. So it's hard to say definitively what my week looks like, but I always have all four practices open and that allows me to move and for some people that might be a bit overwhelming fighting fires in four places at a time but I thrive on that and actually the fact that I don't have a set clinic in a set day of each practice allows me to then move myself so yesterday for example I went to two of the practices in the network one to just have a meeting with a PM about some med shortages and a process we're putting in place around that and then I went to look at the appointment structure in another practice so I can move myself around is the short answer. So your practices, you know, like are geographically close. So you physically move yourself around. Yeah. So I'm really lucky. My commute is like seven minutes. It's fantastic. I'm sorry to anyone listening that is really jealous of that. (laughs) I have to drive further to the University of Brighton because I'm in Horsham. But yes, it's really great living really close. Three of the practices are walkable. So I park in town and then I walk to them. And then the other practices are a bit more of a, I'm saying a bit more of a drive, literally like six minutes. So I can move anywhere. And if there's a particular issue that's going on at a practice, I'd really make a point of physically going in there. It's important, I think. You mentioned for those of us that work in primary care networks, the impact investment fund targets. And in some respects, last year, there's a debate on how impactful they were. But from a pharmacist perspective, you knew what you were doing. It was all there. This year, the indicators have really reduced. 
how are you utilizing your pharmacist in your network now the goalpost has moved a little bit so i think it's such a poignant thing last year as you said it was very prescriptive so it was how many medication structured medication reviews have you done how many reviews have you done on patients that are on medications that are associated with dependence how many of your patients with atrial fibrillation are anticoagulated lots and lots of prescriptive targets that are outcome driven have you met your target yes or no this year it is just what's the access like how do patients access your services and luckily when I first came into this role last year I'd put a really robust structure in place because I'm very as I mentioned really early on in this interview is pharmacists aren't very outspoken when we're doing the work sometimes it's behind the scenes and not everyone knows what that work is and I'm very keen to showcase that and make sure that everyone has the ability to showcase their work. So if you're doing a discharge and you have to ring a patient and you do a med review that comes from that discharge, you can book that in as an appointment and everyone in the practice can see that you've had to call that particular patient and do a full medication review. Whereas other practices, the pharmacist and the pharmacy technicians might call patients and then not document it anywhere apart from in the patient's notes. So you really have to go looking for that particular appointment. So in terms of what that looks like in this contract this year is that all of my team have ledgers. All of my team have the ability that if there is any sort of administrative process that results in a patient phone call or a patient having to be called, that is booked in by themselves. They're empowered to do that on their own. It doesn't involve any other system because that the system's already under strain. And they book that particular patient in. Now, if they're doing administrative processes that don't result in appointment, they don't book in, obviously. But if you can imagine how many tasks, how many documents, how many discharges, how many hospital letters result in having to ring the patient and do a full medication review, it's really important to showcase that. I think the rule of general practice, what I always say to people is, who's the busiest? It's the person with the longest list. That's just the mentality of general practice for people that don't really necessarily know what they're looking at. The person that's got the biggest list or the longest list looks like they're the busiest. So I want my team to be able to feel empowered that I don't want them to book things that are not phone calls, but when they are making phone calls and contacts with patients, those contacts are put in into the list. And that's really important in terms of showcasing this access to the new contract. And then just on top of the routine access, there's on the day access. So there's lots of issues at the moment with medication shortages. And if a patient can't get hold of a particular medication, rather than going through reception and that waiting through a task, I've given on the day availability for all of my team. So if someone rings up on the day, instead of that going on a duty GP list, it goes on our duty slots, if you like. And that relieves the pressure on the system. And that's really key for the access for the patient. They don't need to speak to a duty GP if they can't get hold of a medication. We can sort that out for them. How are you sorting that out, though, if there is a shortage? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> say it. Absolutely great question. So it's a really big issue. There's lots and lots of different shortages. We've got a really close relationship with our community pharmacies. My pharmacy technician created a WhatsApp group with the local pharmacies. So if there's something unavailable, we'll send a message and any of the pharmacies that can get hold of that, because they've all got different suppliers, will send a message saying, yeah, I can get this in. If they can't get a particular thing, they will then hopefully suggest an alternative to us. And then just to streamline that process, I developed a form that the patient can then bring back to the surgery. So the pharmacy fills out, we can't get hold of this, but we can get hold of this. And then hands it back to the patient, gives it to our team. And then we sort out the alternative there and then. It stops that. I call it task tennis, where the patient's going back to the pharmacy, back to the practice. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match 
is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the God for Good website at godforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. take it a few of your friends are pharmacists that work in the community have you had any pharmacy closures in your area yeah we've had a couple I feel sorry for the patients more than anything else because it will often happen without a huge amount of warning and if you imagine how many patients use that pharmacy as a routine way to get their medications then all of a sudden that pharmacy is not not in business anymore it's quite discombobulating and I think what we did when one of the pharmacies in the area closed for example we sent a batch AccuRx message to the patients with a respond link. So I'm really sorry to say that your pharmacy is closing down, but we're happy to change your pharmacy. Please respond to us directly with what pharmacy you would like us to change to. And that just allowed the patients to kind of make that decision there and then kept them in the loop so they didn't run out of their medications, then turn up to a pharmacy where the bars are down and the doors are closed. I think that was the way that we dealt with it. There's no easy way to deal with that type of situation, but there's going to be more and more pharmacies perhaps closing over the next few years. The reason for it, without going into it too much, is quite a lot of pharmacies use a hub dispensing model. So lots of pharmacies will have a centralised like big warehouse where they'll dispense the medications in a big factory, if you like, and then post them out to local pickup branches or directly post them out to the patients. And that's becoming quite popular, hence why you don't need as many smaller pharmacies. Well, in my area, so I'm in Whitsable, three pharmacies have closed down. There's like a security guard manning the queue. <laughs> my daughter's got type 1 diabetes and it's like... I keep going into Tesco. The queue is so long, but the impact on pharmacies closing is that A, some people won't be able to get their medication. B, is you'll leave it to the last minute. Absolutely. Because I'm a working mum. I haven't got time to stand in a queue for like an hour Mm. and then not have faith that it's even going to be there. Or in stock, yeah. So I think I've always, I know it's not a practical sense for everyone, but always making sure you're ordering with plenty of time. And I say this to all the patients, I'd say about a 10-day rule. So when you're about 10 days from running out, it's a really good rule, I think, and the pharmacies will appreciate that. But also taking advantage when you can of the online pharmacies. There's quite a lot of them and they're fairly good, fairly reliable. And the ones that post the prescriptions out that do that centralised hub dispense that I mentioned, they can be really useful for those types of patients that are really busy and actually struggle getting down physically to the pharmacy. But it doesn't suit everyone. And I think it's really tricky at the moment. There's a state of flux with both stock and pharmacies. (laughs) It's just really tricky, isn't it? Have you been to best practice before? No, never been to best practice. And it's the first time this year that they're opening the PCN Pharmacist Theatre. I think it's called a theatre and not a stage. How did you get the opportunity to speak there? How did that come about? It came about through LinkedIn. Someone reached out to me, obviously interested in things that I was posting. I'm quite active on LinkedIn. I post quite a lot to do with my various networks, whether that's my teaching or my PCM role. So someone reached out via there and just suggested it might be a good idea for me to come to best practice first year where they've got that new theatre or stage. I don't know what it's called. And what type of topics would I feel was appropriate to talk about? So I suggested four titles and I got a response saying they wanted all four. Uh, but they had to choose that they had to choose two so it just shows that there's obviously some common themes which is really positive and then yeah we settled on those two types of topics so the pharmacist prescribers and then the access to the pharmacy team 
another thing I want to highlight is from listening to you speak and the opportunities, you do put yourself out there. And I think loads of people, you know, LinkedIn isn't new and people say, well, network and put yourself on LinkedIn. I can't remember the percentage, but the percentage of people that have got a LinkedIn profile compared to the percentage of people that post. Mm. Is but I think for me, it's about sharing. I don't do it for me trying to get opportunities for myself. I do it to share best practice. So before we came online, I spoke about my PCN created a podcast. And I'm really passionate about that because it's sharing real patient outcomes, sharing really positive practice that's going on in our area with my team. I share for people to take ideas for people to, if they don't like the idea, they don't have to take the idea, but I'd share it. So other professionals, whether they're pharmacists or not pharmacists can kind of look at that and say, actually, that sounds like a pretty good idea that this sounds pretty good. I think that there's a lot of silo working in primary care. I don't like it. I want everyone to feel that they can share everything. People tend to be very protective of their own ideas. And I don't like that because then the patients are the ones that suffer. So if you've got an amazing thing that you're practicing and you're doing, share it. I'm quite geeky, so I build quite a lot of searches and templates on the GP clinical system. I share them everywhere. I'm like, absolutely, do it. Fine, take that. I do some training through the Clinical Pharmacist Academy, and I want to share that all the time. People can do lots and lots of things in their own time. People can look at links and be as geeky as they want to be, but if the information is not being shared, then they're not going to know it's out there. So I'm really passionate about that, and I linked in some fantastic for that. I feel that passion. <laughs> <laughs> Feel, feel that geekiness with building searches and templates. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I think we've got it in common. Otherwise, I wouldn't do the podcast. I think. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's a fantastic opportunity. And I think I say, like, the people that come on the podcast, it's like everyday leaders. And you don't have to be, you know, like the CEO of NHS England to have amazing ideas and to share absolutely. with everybody. So, Danny, if people want to contact you, where is the best place? I think LinkedIn generally, to be honest with you, the most people contact me is on LinkedIn, unless you're in Horsham, then you can reach out to one of the four practices that work in. Generally speaking, LinkedIn, and then we can see if there's a way to collaborate. I'm always open to collaborating with lots and lots of different organisations about driving practice forward. And if you're perhaps a pharmacist or a pharmacy technician, or you've got pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, and you don't know how to utilise them properly, and you just want a bit of advice, or you don't know where you're going to go next in terms of your development, then please reach out. I'm more than happy to share my experience. I'm not an expert in everything. I'm not an expert in very many things, but I like sharing my journey. And if that can help, then reach out on LinkedIn or something. Yeah. Well, I'll leave your handle in the show notes. Thank you so much. I will see you in October. Yeah, I'll see you in October. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.